chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 of Genesis. And while you turn there, during my preparation this week, uh, I was suffering from jet lag and mental block. And so I did something I've never done before, and that was I went to Sermon Audio, and I, I just put in the text just to see what people did with the text. I don't even know why I did it. And it was a very eye-opening experience, really, to see what's out there. Uh, there were a number of sermons on the gift of tongues, the New World Order, kinism. And if you don't know what kinism is, be ye glad. Uh, it's not something you really want to know what it is. Uh, so all of these strange, divergent kinds of things, and rejoice, I'm not going to really touch on any of those this morning. So let's turn to the word of our God. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar or asphalt for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city in the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Let's pray. Father, as we gather this morning... We rejoice that you have given those of us who are in this room a common language to speak together, that we might learn from your word. And we thank you for those who have preserved and translated those scriptures for us. Thank you that you have granted us minds capable of thought and reason. And we bring these gifts back to you to be used according to your purposes, to make known the glory of your Son. So help us to listen, to understand, and to believe. For Christ's sake, amen. If you're a student of the 20th century, there's probably two organizations that stick out in your mind. Uh, At least they do to me. And the first is the League of Nations which was a response to World War I, where they said, we don't want this ever to happen again. And so they formed this thing, organization called the League of Nations to try and work out differences peacefully. Well, as you can tell by the fact that World War II happened, it didn't quite work out all that well. So they decided, let's do this again. And it was the United Nations. It was the second go-round on the whole League of Nations notion. But we see that this whole idea of trying to bring about peace and unity, 
through humanistic methods is not sort of a new idea. We find it all the way back at the Tower of Babel. And we find that what drives it is really pride and a a longing for security that we produce ourselves. Really, it goes back to unbelief. It's sort of removing God from the scenario, the political scenario, and, and saying that there is no one who will take care of us, who will protect us and provide for us. Therefore, we have to do it ourselves. And secondly, we're the best thing around, aren't we? Let's make something as a tribute to our greatness. So that's kind of what's going on in a lot of ways now. And it's just a reflection of what happened way back then. It's nothing new. It's the same sort of thing. The big idea this morning is that God hinders prideful aspirations in order to bring redemption. We're going to look at this text uh, in this way this morning. We're going to look at man's plans. Then we're going to look at God's assessment then God's plan from the text. And then we're going to take another step and go, God's greater plan. Let's look, we're going to look at this text in light of the rest of Scripture to see what kind of unfolds in all of this process. And so let's start with man's plan, which really was essentially to seek heaven apart from God. That's what they're trying to do here. And this text, this event, begins on the plains of Shinar or more commonly known as Babylonia. Okay? And this, this takes place during the time of Peleg. And that's the name of a guy that we didn't read because he's in chapter 10. And we skipped over that part of chapter 10. What happens is that Moses is now explaining some events that he alludes to in the genealogies of Genesis 10. Okay? So this is not in chronological order. This is not... The events of Genesis 10 take place, then the events of Genesis 11, then the events of Genesis 12. But actually what Moses is doing is he's now telling you in more detail what happened in Genesis 10. So some people get confused by those things. No, it's pretty simple, actually. And what happens is that together they devise a plan that is similar to that of the evil Lamech. Remember we talked about there, was two, there were two Lamechs. One was the, the father of Noah good guy, and then it was Lamech, who was the line of Cain, not so good guy, okay, and they're following this pattern of moving east, just like Cain did, and they follow the pattern that that Lamech set of city building. To protect themselves, they're going to build a city, and so in light of this, they say this, this phrase, come, now that is a common theme throughout this particular text of scripture, this idea of come. And in this instance, they say, first of all, come, let us make bricks. They're changing their methodology in terms of city building. They're moving away from putting stones together and using mortar. And what they're going to do this time is they're going to break, uh, bake bricks. Okay? And for some reason, they decided to use asphalt or tar for mortar. So this is really probably not going to be the nicest looking city that you've ever seen. Okay, It may actually look a little strange. But nonetheless, they decided to make use of those things that were around them, and they're going to build a city. Well, first they say, let's bake bricks. Then they say again, come. Now why do they want to come? Let us build a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. 
that we might not be scattered. So now this, this is their end game. This is what they're looking for. This is what they want to achieve through the baking of the bricks. They want to build a city so that they will not be scattered. They want security. They're afraid that for some reason they are going to be scattered. Now, in some sense, they shouldn't be afraid that they should be scattered because they were supposed to scatter. They were supposed to go and fill the earth. Right? And so what's happening is in the city building is that they're actually re- rejecting God's authority. They're actually acting in rebellion. They're casting off of his commands, and so they're trying to, to huddle together and stay together. And they're afraid that they will be scattered. And so that's part of why they build the city. But they also say, let us build this tower, this tower that reaches to the heavens, And so they had this common conception that God is above, okay? And what they would do in the ancient Near East is they would build these fun things called ziggurats, and basically they're towers, and it's like a stairway. Don't let too much Zeppelin go through your heads if you're young, okay? But it's a stairway that is meant to bring you up to heaven. And when we, we... if we ever get to, to Jacob, I don't know if we're going to get Jacob, but Jacob's ladder, that's what it is. He's, he's looking at a ziggurat, and what he's seeing when he looks at the ziggurat is he's seeing angels descending up and down upon this. And so the idea was, if we build this, we can climb this, we can get up to the heavens, we can bring down the blessing and the power and the glory and make it our own. So what it is, is they're seeking to storm the gates of heaven through the ziggurat. That's what they're wanting to do. And make a name for themselves. Now, that, that phrase will sort of pop up next week when we look at Abraham because it's going to take a very different thing. They're not like Abraham. What's going to happen with Abraham is God is going to give him a great name. These people are trying to make a great name for themselves. If they were around today, they would be wanting to be celebrities. I mean, you see that sometimes today. You see a quote about some of these people. They want to be famous. They want to be somebody. That's what these people are doing. They want to be known for something. And so that, that is part of the, the, the motivation behind building this ziggurat or this tower that brings them to the heavens. And so they're, they're trying to satisfy their pride They're also seeking to satisfy their desire for security apart from God himself. And if we take a step back, what we see is that this is not particular to the people of Babel, but really is what functions in every false religion. The idea that somehow I can storm heaven and gain the blessings of heaven through my goodness and righteousness. Because Christianity is the only one that has a savior. It is the only religion that has the idea that says, you can't get there. You are a sinner in need of a savior. But every other world religion teaches basically that you do good enough, you'll get there. And so the spirit behind Babel is the same spirit that is behind the false religions that we see today. So pride and fear meet unbelief as they seek the blessings of heaven apart from the God of heaven. All right, God's assessment. 
We've seen that they've sought heaven apart from God. How does God assess this? Unbelief corrupts God's gifts is really his basic assessment. And we have some irony that takes place. Actually, this whole passage is laden with irony. Okay, But here it is. Get the irony. They've built the tower to heaven, but God has to come down to look at it. God came down. It's not quite as high as they thought it was, is it? Sort of like the astronauts who thought that once we get to outer space, maybe we'll see God in heaven. Well, no, you're still not high enough. Not even close. I think of it this way. While we were on vacation, my daughter came up to me and she was really excited about this fort that her cousins had built back in the woods. And she wanted to show it to me. You know, remember, she had no part in making this. But, it, you know, for a five-year-old, this was like, and I remember being a kid, and we built forts, and we had a tree fort. So I guess I was thinking tree fort. So I go out into the woods with her. And basically what it is is it's a semi-cleared space that's a little bit bigger than the platform up here. And there were some old toys, like, you know, a fake kitchen, a kid's kitchen, and uh, a part of a slide or something over here. And they built this fort. And they were excited about that fort. But as an adult, you look at the fort and go, huh? That's sort of the sense here. In that these people are so excited about this tower they built. It's so awesome. It's so great. This is the best thing ever. And God comes down and he goes, huh? That's a tower to heaven? Are you kidding me? And so God comes down, in a sense, on a fact-finding mission. And he finds a pathetic excuse for a tower that goes to heaven. But he also finds a couple of other things. He finds first that the prob- one of the problems is the one language that they had. Now, this is not to say there weren't many languages, but there was a common tongue that was spoken. If you think of the days of Jesus, or even if you think of modern-day Russia, okay, there are many different languages that are spoken within those realms. But there was one language that was spoken by almost all of the people. So, they, so the people from... Uh, Antioch could communicate with the people from Jerusalem who could speak to the people from northern Africa who could speak to the people from Rome. Or in Russia today, the people in Moscow can still speak to the people in the, in the different stans that used to be associated with Russia. Okay, even though they have their own dialects, there was a common tongue that, drew, that brought them together. And so this is the idea that is going on. There is a common tongue that brings them together despite the fact they may have had their own separate languages. But what is more profound is that they have the gift of language, which was given by God, which was meant to be used to glorify him, to speak of his greatness, and to help us to work together to do things to establish his glory and his honor. And what they're doing is they're using this gift, they've corrupted it for their glory and honor. They've corrupted it to rebel. They've taken this good gift... And made it evil. Well, language isn't evil, but their use for it was evil. And there's a second thing. The gift of being able to plan, to think. And when, when God ta- speaks of it briefly here, 
it just brings back to mind Genesis chapter 6. Or every thought or plan of their minds was evil, not good. And so God gave us a will and a mind to, to be able to devise plans and ideas for His glory and for His honor. And again, this good gift has been taken and twisted. The mind which was meant to dwell on God's glory is now being used to once again revolt against Him. To cast off those shackles, those chains. It is as if things have quickly returned to the pre-flood condition of Genesis 6. Because what I didn't mention is that Shinar and Babylonia were founded by Nimrod. And Nimrod was a tyrant. The same word that is used in Genesis 6 to talk about those really nasty dudes. He was one of them. He was just like them. Think about Noah and his sons for a moment. They're still alive. I kind of wonder what went through their minds as they're kind of probably sitting back and watching what's going on and thinking, oh my goodness, here we go again. What is God going to do? They must have been fearing the worst at times. Thankfully, the worst didn't come. But God's gifts were meant for His glory, but humanity corrupted them by their pride and unbelief. So what does God plan? His plan was to frustrate unbelief. We see a glimpse into the divine council for a moment. They develop this plan to deal with the unbelieving city of man. Come. Where humanity was saying, come, let's do evil. God is basically saying, come, let's hinder evil. Come, let us go down. Again, the irony that God has to go all the way down to deal with these people. He plans, he plans a return visit, but this one will be very different. He's no longer on a fact-finding mission. He knows the facts, so to speak. And this is a pattern that we see throughout the Genesis, okay, is that God does not just rule from on high, but he visits. Like he visits Sodom. <coughs> he gets the facts, so to speak. But when God comes, he's going to do two things this time. And the first is, he says, confuse. That he will confuse their language. The one language that they used to unite together and rebel together against God is going to be removed so that they will no longer be able to unite in order to rebel. He's going to limit the amount of evil that they can do. Now, for some of us, we sit and we think about the numerous, the diversity of languages and cultures and somehow see, oh man, this makes preaching the gospel so hard. But as you stop and think about it, I think John Piper is right. And that God sees that there's far more danger in the unity of a fallen humanity than there is in the diversity of a fallen humanity. He's going to redeem the diverse humanity. 
but he has to get there first. While they're united, they're capable of far too much evil to themselves. And so in his common grace, he does this. He, he limits their potential to do evil in unison. And so first he confuses their language, and then the second is he scattered them. The very thing they didn't want to have happen in the first place now comes true. Again, the irony. They're working really hard so they don't get scattered, and God shows up and poof. There they go. Sort of like the, uh, oh, I can't remember the weed anymore. I used to see them all the time when I was a kid in New England. You know, it's been so long since I've seen them, but, you know, saw some of those. They turn white and you blow them. It is, the, is it the dandelion? Oh, I guess. Yeah, dandelion near death, right? Okay. Well, we saw the dandelions, but I also saw the dandelion near death. And I just, that's basically what he's doing. It's like he's blowing on them and they're scattering into the wind across the face of the earth. It's nothing for him to scatter them, despite how hard they fight it. Amazing, isn't it? He fulfilled their greatest fear because their fear was born of disobedience. It was, it was born of unbelief. And now they will begin to fill the world as it was intended. But notice here, God did not come down and destroy them. In his compassion, he only frustrated them. There's something instructive there, I think, for us. Because sometimes our plans get frustrated, don't they? My plans, even this morning, frustrated at times. He does that for our good. We sometimes think that we try to blame it all on Satan, right? (laughs) Isn't that what we often do? Oh, my plans didn't come together. It must be Satan. Well, sometimes it's God. Because sometimes our plans are born out of unbelief. Sometimes our plans are born out of our pride. Sometimes they are born out of our fear and idolatry. And when this is the case, God frustrates them. He says, I love you and I'm not going to let you get away with it. This is what I do to my children all the time. And God, because he's my loving father, does the same to me. And if you, by faith, are his child this morning, he does the same to you. There will be times when he will frustrate your plans precisely because he loves you that much, because your plans may actually be born of your pride or your fear instead of faith. All right. So basically what he does is he takes out their two idols. He, he takes out their pride and their security. And that's what he does with us. So God removed two of the means to their humanistic ends. Now let's take a look at this from the perspective of the rest of the scriptures and what, how all of these threads sort of play out in the rest of the Bible. God's greater plan is actually one of judgment and salvation. Let's pick up some of these scattered pieces here and put them into this larger story. Again, Babylonia, Babylon, and as we, as if you look in Genesis 10, Assyria as well were both founded by Nimrod, who, as I mentioned, was a tyrant. And what happens is that these would become the two bullies on the block later on in history. 
You had Egypt, but eventually Egypt is going to be supplanted by Assyria and then Babylon. And while, while Egypt was not like the kindest nation in the world, he was, Egypt was really kind of mellow compared to Assyria. <laughs> Assyria still has the reputation as one of the most brutal and oppressive regimes ever. What they did to people that they conquered was unthinkable. Okay? Well, Assyria, Nineveh, is going to take out the northern kingdom, Israel. Babylon is going to take out, after that, the southern kingdom, Judah. Imagine, for a moment, being so bad that the God of the universe sends the baddest bully on the block to take you out. They were so bad precisely because they were in covenant with God. They had tasted of His grace. And so their disobedience was of a different kind than the disobedience of Assyria and Nineveh. And yet Scripture is clear that they were the tools that He used to punish His people. But the story doesn't end there. If you fast forward to uh, Revelation, what you find is that Babylon represents humanity in rebellion. In a sense, a counterfeit people of God. And so what happens is that they, uh, they are eventually destroyed. We, we read about that in uh, Revelation 18. But one of the interesting things is, note the irony, 18.5. For her, speaking of Babylon, sins are heaped high as heaven. And God remembered her iniquities. So instead of there being a tower to climb to the heavens, here you find that their sins have been stacked so high against God that they reach to the heavens. And now he's going to destroy them. Where once he frustrated them, eventually he's going to destroy in judgment. So... That's sort of where that thread, that scattered piece of of Babylon ends up. Connected with that is the whole idea of pride. And we see from uh, uh, 1 Peter 5 and James chapter 4 that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God still actively opposes the proud just as he opposed the proud at the Tower of Babel. He's still doing this. He still hates pride. He still works against those who try to make life work for themselves as opposed to relying upon Him. Okay? Uh, the other night we watched VeggieTales. It was the story of pistachio. You've probably never heard of the story of pistachio unless you have little kids. And basically it's the story of Pinocchio <laughs> transformed into pistachio because he was made from the wood of pistachio tree. But one of the themes there with his father, Gelato, again, they changed it all. In fact, they, they lived in the town of Bologna Salami. So anyway, um, part, of the, part of what happens in the story is that it's pistachio's pride that is the problem. Gelato is seeking to instruct him and make him wise, and he keeps wanting to do thing his own, things his own way. He doesn't need gelato at all. 
he thinks. And eventually he finds himself in such grave danger that it is only Gelato who can rescue him. But, nonetheless, that's what humanity does. I mean, you see it with kids all the time. You're a parent, you're trying to instruct them. What happens? They want to do things their own way. And sometimes you let them so that they'll fail. That's hard as a parent. To let your child have what they want knowing that it's going to bring them pain. And yet they won't ever learn if you keep rescuing them prematurely. That's what we do. We're more subtle in how we do it than our children are. We disguise it much better. But we often say to God, I'm going to do this my way. I know you've told me to do it this way, but I'm going to, I think I know better than you. I'm going to go and do it this way. And he still opposes us. And yet, the other side of that scripture is he gives grace to the humble. To those who recognize, you know what? My way isn't always the best way. In fact, it usually isn't the best way. What's God's way? But which are we? Which are you? Are you the one who does things your way, like Frank Sinatra? Or do you say, like Jesus taught us, thy will be done. That's one of the hardest things to pray. Because it's dying to self. Dying to your own agenda. Saying, not my way, your way. Just as Jesus did in Gethsemane. Not my will be done, but yours. Not only that, in light of the fact that we all struggle with pride, we see that there is Jesus, who though he was God, humbled himself. Note the irony there. That the most humble person that ever walked the face of the planet was the one who made it all. That the one who had, who, who had the right to say, I'm smart enough, humbled himself. The one, who said, the one who was able to make all the rules was himself obedient. The one who had everlasting life himself died, was obedient unto death. And he did this to save arrogant sinners like us, to bring them back to God. And so that ties in with what he does with the nations that he scattered, is that he begins now to gather them. They were scattered by their unbelief, and now they're gathered by faith. We see that beginning in Acts chapter 2. Where sort of the undoing of, of the Tower of Babel starts because now people hear the gospel in their own language. It continues until we see the great picture in Revelation chapter 5, where it talks about how 
Worthy are you, O Lamb of God, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God is now in the process of undoing that which he did at the Tower of Babel because he is gathering to himself one people that will worship him as opposed to themselves. But he's gathering them from the scattered nations. And so he frustrated in order that he ultimately would redeem. They're brought together through faith in Jesus Christ despite their different languages, despite their different dress, despite their different diets, despite all of the differences that seem to separate them. And it all will culminate when Jesus returns. People from every background are going to worship him. So there will be one humanity upon earth, some sort of utopia, I guess you could call it. But it won't be established by humanity. It won't be legislated by the UN or any other authority. God himself will establish it, and he will establish it through his son, who is the king forever, upon the return of his son. And so unbelief still looks to humanity for its answers, but faith still looks to Christ and to Christ alone for its answers. And that's what sets up the life of faith that we're going to be looking at through the life of Abraham in the months to come. So let's pray. Father, we are uh, very prone toward pride and to seek our security in our own plans and designs. And so we ask that you would forgive us, but also that you would transform us. Transform our hearts so that we are more prone to trust you that we are more prone to submit to you, to depend upon you in Jesus Christ. Help us to trust you as your plan unfolds. In addition to trusting you, to be obedient to your commands in the unfolding of that plan. And we ask these things that your grace might be glorified and extended to others, that they might too might be called from unbelief to faith, and therefore life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.